We are in um, the uh, saddest book named after one of those uh, words that uh, we don't really like to think about a lot of the time, lamentations. It starts off here in chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read the first six verses here. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. And so, Father, tonight as we approach um, this um, uh, amazing poem, uh, that, that if we were to have to describe our own lives, um, would, would far um, put us to shame in a lot of ways in our own self-pity and uh, and our own selfishness in our own lives, where we too go through problems, but um, probably not to the same depth as what Jeremiah is going through. And Lord, tonight, help us to get a better perspective on what it is like to go through the worst time in, in not only um, Israel's history, but, but in one of the worst times in the history of the world where a, a nation has been destroyed. And Jeremiah is lamenting, not himself, but those around him. And so, Lord, uh, change our hearts, too. When we see our own nation, uh, the world uh, in this time that truly is um, uh, being destroyed, not so much by the things that we do, per se, but, but the things that are happening in the world because of sin. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to lament this world, too. That, that we would be willing to go out of our comfort zones, to reach out to those that um, are going through horrific times, Lord. That, that we would be the light and the salt of this world. And so, Lord, I ask that you would guide us tonight. Thank you so much for these. Uh, my friends and my family gathered here in this room. You would just bless them mightily, Lord. We do. We lift up to you our pastors or... Uh, Pastor Mike Ostheimer and Pastor Mike Cosper and Pastor Mike Butler and Pastor Mike Atkinson and, and Pastor Jason, our, our elders, Larry and Ron, that you would give them true wisdom, Lord, and especially in these times where uh, churches are uh, being attacked, Lord, that you would continue to guide them in, in leading this church, Lord. And Lord, I thank you so much for the congregation, those that faithfully attend every single week, those that are online. Lord, I, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come and gather before you corporately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I, I've been, you know, really enjoying uh, going through not only Jeremiah, but now uh, uh, the next book, Lamentations, written by the same author, uh, Jeremiah. And you, you think about all the things that you could be doing tonight. You could be watching hockey right now. Did you know that? You could. You could be watching the, you know, whatever the, yeah, yeah, you know, Stanley Cup Finals. I'm, I'm, you know, or you could be a basketball fan because you don't like hockey, and so you came tonight so you could watch tomorrow night, you know. Uh, but I'm just glad you guys are here. I'm so uh, grateful that uh, people love the Word of God, and we have the opportunity to come to a church that has the doors open, uh, that we can worship God, and then also... Uh, read his word as well. We are in one of those books that um, <clears throat> if you don't look at it in the right perspective can be terribly depressing. <clears throat> it's one of those books like the book of Job or, or, you know, certain ones of the imprecatory Psalms. We'll talk about that word in a little bit. But the Psalms that, uh, you know, cause, you know, God bring vengeance down on those that are my enemies. We're going to see that as we walk through Psalm or Lamentations chapter 3 uh, tonight. 
But we see the, the initial perspective now going into the first person singular in chapter 3. The first two chapters were about the corporate nation as a, a whole. And now Jeremiah is taking this in such a way that he's putting himself now understanding what God is doing. As, as a, the prophet of God to the nation of Israel at the worst time in Israel. Israel's history where the walls have been torn down, the temple has been destroyed, and Jeremiah is writing this lament. Uh, we remember from last week, every single one of these chapters is a division of 22, right? They're all meant to be uh, memorized, a, a mnemonic device where we can remember according to uh, the Hebrew alphabet, each and every single one of the Hebrew consonants in alphabetical order, uh, representing each and every single one of these uh, verses. And even in, you know, the New King James Version, you, you get a lot of that uh, rhyme, if you will, right? In fact, the, the last three verses that we read, did, did you catch the, the rhyme pattern? What does it say there in verse 4? He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. That, that rhythm, uh, that, that pattern that is meant to be something that grabs your heart. And so you can see the pictures in it. It is one of the most horrific times where if you were to read verse 20 of the previous chapter, it would make your heart cry. I always hate reading that verse, and I'm going to have to read one that's very similar to it here in chapter 3, so you can read it for yourself there in verse 20 of chapter 2. It is one of the worst times in the nation of Israel as they're going through not only a famine and disease and, and drought and the enemy of Babylon has surrounded the walls, but now people are being exiled to Babylon in multiple stages. And you can learn about that in a previous episode at the end of Jeremiah. You can read the last chapter there of Jeremiah chapter um, 62 there. But the understanding now, Jeremiah is putting himself in this place as he himself literally personally going through a lot of these same trials himself. What does it say there in verse 1? I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. How can you ever find any sort of resolution or consolation or hope in these verses. And yet, in the middle of this amazing book, there is one of the most glorious promises in the whole Bible. Wherever, in the very depths of despair, God brings about hope. Where a nation is literally being torn apart and God is showing them the bright light of his love and hope and mercy and grace. And I know many of you know these verses that we're going to be reading in just a little bit. Verse 7, it picks up the story again. He has hedged me in that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy even when I cry and shout. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths uh, crooked. And if you look at the number of verses now in chapter 3, it's still a division of 22, but it's 66 verses now. And so every three verses are going to start in sequential order. Every three verses are going to start with a sequential Hebrew consonant, similar to Psalms 119 as well. And you can uh, learn about that. And I think we did it probably a year and a half ago or so. It's absolutely amazing to see how God brings about these pictures in your mind. Do you see what is happening in Jeremiah's life? 
where he's crying out to God. And it feels like there's this literally uh, ceiling of iron that is keeping his prayers away from God. Why, why aren't you answering me, God? I, I'm a prophet. You know, and all of us can, you know, do our woe is me's. We, we, we can all, you know, say that, you know, I remember my, my brother always loved jokes. My brother Joshua. And I remember he always had this book of, you know, Bible jokes, you know. Uh, what, what, what was the, the horse of Jeremiah? And do you know his name? It's Ismi. Whoa, is me, you know, so yeah, 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 I know, it's, it, it, you know, it's Father's Day, it's okay, don't worry about it, you know, but, but you understand what's going on here, and, and we try to make light of these things, but the understanding is that Jeremiah is going through a horrific time. It's as if God is pouring out his wrath upon Jeremiah, he's taking this very, very personally, in fact, every single one of the singular uh, pronouns that we see here are personalized to Jeremiah and all the he's, the, the, you know, the other you know, second person pronouns, they're all about God. In fact, if you count up the number of he's that are in this uh, chapter, every single verse is going to have a, a he in it, it, responding to God. In fact, it says there in verse 10, he has been to me a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. What is that like? Where, where it feels like God has this bow this massive bow in the sky, and who is the target for every single one of his arrows? Jeremiah. And you remember where he's at. He's in a pit at the time that he's writing this. We're going to see exactly this in a, in a little bit. But where, where's the target at on Jeremiah's body? It's not his forehead. It's not his chest. L look where the target's at. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. This is a G-rated version, by the way. He, he literally has the target below his waist. And it feels like it really, I mean, hurts to the very core of his manhood. Where, where, where God is literally shooting his arrows at Jeremiah. Could, could Jeremiah have said, I, I'm a righteous man. I don't deserve to be here with these people that have sinned, that deserve your wrath, God. Could he have given up with every single right a long time ago? But you remember from the book of Jeremiah, every single day for 23 years, he rose up early in the morning and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to, or gospel of God to uh, the people of Israel. To repent of their sins. And yet at the same time he stays with the people. And despite the fact that he also could have been taken away. Oh what about Daniel? Or what about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Or what about Ezekiel? They get to go to Babylon. Where, where does Daniel get to serve? You know it, right? Yeah, in the king's court he gets to go to university and learn another language, right? You know, we don't, you know, remember all the hard times that he went through. That, you know, Lion's Den and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going through the fiery furnace. Or, or Ezekiel. He could have been like Ezekiel and been by the river Kibar with all those people that rejected God in Babylon. As he gets those visions of these immense, massive, beautiful, powerful beings, wheels within wheels. And the four figure or four faced beings. But where's Lamentation or where's Jeremiah as he's writing Lamentations? Where is he? He's in a pit. Having to deal with a hard hearted, stiff necked people 
where it feels like God is pointing his bow at his loins. Or in verse 14, I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink uh, wormwood. What, what is it like to be a prophet in the time of Jeremiah? Do people, you know, applaud him? Do, do people, you know, think highly of him? Does he get some sort of a salary or something like that? Or a trip or a vacation or anything? No. People are making fun of him for staying there. And preaching the truth to them. It's bitter. It's that wormwood. You can feel it even as you describe it in the following three verses. You can feel it in your very teeth. Have you ever chewed on sand before? <clears throat> Look at the description here. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. He has moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. What is that like? God, is this really your uh, will for me that I be here? It's easy to look at our circumstances. It's so easy. It's easy to look at the slimy walls around you or, or the darkness or, or being sunk down into that pit. It's so easy to look at the problems that we have in this life. And forget about the one who is bringing us to the perfect place of submission to him. Where is the hope? Where is the hope? Where is the hope? Now this is the perfect time to remind you of the last verse that we read at the beginning of last week. You guys remember the last verse that we read of Lamentation chapter 5. Where is God? Those of you that were here last week know the answer to that. Where is God? He's on the throne. He's still on the throne. Even when we go through hard times. Is God still in control? When we go through times of trial and times where we feel like everything is going against us. Is God still on the throne? Yes. He always has been. He always will be. And he's on the throne in these verses as well. And this is where the amazing thing comes to fruition here. And probably one of the only verses that you've probably ever heard from Lamentations. Probably only one of the, the verses that you've put on a refrigerator or read in a devotional. <clears throat> the middle of this amazing book here. It says, verse 19, remember my affliction and the roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. When I remember and look at my circumstances, what happens to my heart? Every single time, what will always happen to your heart when you look at your circumstances? It'll sink every time. But. And this is the amazing part of the book of Lamentations that brings about the greatest of hope. The light's still the same intensity, by the way. It just looks brighter in the dark. The dark brings out the brightness of the light. There's still the same amount of stars in the sky, whether you're in Los Angeles or up in a, you know, unlit mountain vista. But in which place can you see more stars? In the dark place, right? They become brighter to our vision because the darkness is uh, illuminating or you know, bringing out the light. And it's the same thing with hard times in our own lives. This is what Jeremiah has to do. And every single one of us have to do, by the way, in verse 21. Don't look at the circumstances. What should I remember? 
What should I recall to my mind, as Jeremiah says in verse 21? And by the way, do all of us have to do this? Because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy for me to forget. I look at my circumstances. I look at the hard times that are going on all around us. I, I see on the news that, you know, all the roads are being washed out of Yellowstone. And my wife has a, you know, a, you know some sort of a, a, you know, a reunion up in Yellowstone in September. Are we going to be able to go in September to Yellowstone? We all do that, right? We all look at the circumstances. My beautiful wife says, oh, we can go anywhere. You know, it doesn't matter. But when we looked at the washed out roads or, or we look at the financial statements or we look at the hard times that are going on in our life as we look at people maybe even ridiculing us or the things that are going on in this world that bring us down, do every single one of us have to recall to mind what the next four verses say? Every one of us. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Even the godly men of old had to recall these things to their mind. Because in many ways they went through horrific persecutions. As Jesus said, they were tortured and killed for the faith. Moses, with all those millions of Jews that were doubting him every single step in the wilderness, complaining the whole time. Or Joshua, as he's going into the promised land, looking at the people with big, huge walls. Or Daniel in the lion's den. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Or Jesus on the cross. Or us with whatever problems you're going through. Is it easy to look at the problems? And do all of us need to recall to our mind what it means to have hope? And this is the amazing thing. There's a reminder every single day. There's a reminder every single day, and it says it in the next three verses. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every, the mic drop, morning. Every single morning when I look and see the sunrise, who is still faithful? Who is still faithful? God. With new mercies, new compassions. Can you imagine the you know, immensity of the creative power of God to create something new and unique every single day? A new mercy, a new grace, a new compassion. Why? Great is your faithfulness. Is God faithful every single day? And is it easy to forget? But does God remind us every day? Sun in the sky, every single day, every new morning. There's a new grace, new mercy, new compassion. And this is amazing what it says in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Wow. Wow. Do you need to be reminded of that today? I know I do. The Lord is our portion. We get the privilege of going before the God of the universe behind the veil. Entering into the very throne room of God as we learned last Monday in, in the men's group in Hebrews chapter 4. We get to have rest in God. We, we can go into the very throne room of God boldly. Knowing that he opens the doors for us. Verse 25. I love this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the souls who seek them. There's some amazing verses in, in Jeremiah chapter 17 there. Uh, that, that as we think of this word hope. 
speak volumes to this. By the way, written by the same person who wrote uh, these verses here in Lamentations. But in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 17, it says, Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. That's an easy verse to memorize. When we say that, woe is me, or those, you know, um, inward thoughts where we think that nobody has it as hard as me. <clears throat> is God there to bring you hope? Yes, he is. Or, or Micah chapter 7, verse 7, it says this, Therefore I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Isn't that amazing? Micah, another one of those amazing books in the Bible. And, and by the way, this is in the midst of a, a courtroom trial where, where God is the judge over the nation of Israel. And Micah's bringing uh, the accusations against the people of Israel. As Micah is declaring, my God will hear me. Will God hear you? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. No matter what the circumstances look like, will God hear you? Yes, he will. And so this is where the next three verses come into play. Because this is absolutely amazing. And you can see it as, as we, you know, and it's a generational uh, thing. Every single generation has their own uh, claim to suffering, uh, if you will. Uh, our own claim to uh, some sort of a, a trial in our culture. Every single generation has their, you know, uh, problems. And they say, no other generation had it as worse as us. Look what it says there in verses 25 through 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that no or one should hope. And wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Proverbs speak volumes to this, by the way. What does it mean to wait quietly? This is the perfect segue to what Kat has been doing for us over the last couple of months. Bringing us into a place where silence, where we can just listen to God. It's not exciting. It's not dramatic. But it's essential. We can get so caught up in, you know, the entertainment and lose sight of the one that we're actually here for. The God of the universe. And unfortunately, you know, um, the, the younger you are, as we, we see here and in the next couple of verses here as well, it's easy to lose sight of it. I, I remember when I was younger, I always wanted, you know, we always want excitement. We always want the next thing, right? We want to go to the church that is, you know, exciting, right? We always want those things that stretch us and grow us and help us to uh, do amazing things in the name of the Lord. But do we also need to understand that we need to wait quietly upon him? In fact, look here in the next part and you see the, the spiritual disciplines literally laid out here. Uh, the idea that we need to spend alone time with God quietly. What does it say there in verse 28? Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him to be full of reproach. Wow. All those lessons from youth that help us to become more and more mature... It won't last forever. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict. 
In the New King James Version, it says willingly, but literally that means from his heart. <clears throat> Just like any good parent, <clears throat> it, it, you know, that says, you know, this is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. And understands what that means. Or the reason why you discipline a child is because you love them. You don't want them to go through the same problems that you had to go through as a youth. Because you understand the cost. You understand the consequences. And you don't want your children to go through those things. And God, like an even better parent than any parent that has ever lived also disciplines us, not willingly or from his heart, but in such a way to bring about a perfection or a refining in our lives, discipline in our lives. It ends right there in verse 33, nor grieve the son or the children of men. Look at what it describes there in verse 34 through 36, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice, do a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord does not approve. Does God judge the world, discipline the world for a purpose? Yes, he does, because he sees with full 2020 vision all the things that are happening in this world. God observes the entire world. In fact, in verse 37, it goes into perfect detail. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man, for the punishment of his sin. That God, you know, brings about good and woe. That, that, that God brings about um, discipline in people's lives for a reason. And what's the purpose of discipline? It's to refine us. It's to make us more valuable. It's to make us in the image of the one who created us. It says there in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21, and there's lots of verses, by the way, that describe this process of a refining or discipline in our lives. It says, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. And a man is valued by what others say of him. Why is gold so precious? Why are those metals that can be refined where the impurities are taken out so valuable? Because there's something about them that's rare. And how do they become rare? It says that they're perfectly silver and gold have to be refined. And how are they refined? What is the process of refining? It's all, you know, perfect. You know, everything is great. You know, they just slowly take it out of the earth and made into a perfect, some sort of a ring right away. No. What has to go through the process of refining gold or silver? To make it beautiful, shiny, have that luster about them. To have the perfect carat value. To be valuable. They have to go through a refining process. And you guys know the refining process. We've described it many, many times from this own pulpit where literally there would be this huge, massive fire and, and the cauldron filled with the valuable material. And what would that metalsmith do with the dross or the junk that would come up to the top? They would wipe it off. And how would they know when the gold was totally refined? Thank you, Dino. It reflected the maker's face. Isn't that amazing? Why does God refine us? Why does God discipline us? Why does God put us through the fire? 
just sent shivers down my spine to make us look like God, to have the reflection of our maker in our lives. Oh, we can, you know, say, well, I, I, you know, don't need to go through hard times. I'm already holy and all those kind of things. Yeah, none of us would ever say that. I know that. Or just give me good times in my life, God, and I'll do whatever you say. Yeah, the older you get, the more hilarious it becomes. I'm not saying that Dino's old at all. But, but you understand what the process is of refining and discipline. It's to bring us to a place where we realize we need God every single second of our lives. Where we, we need God all the time. He's the one that makes us valuable. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, it describes this in an amazing way, by the way, speaking of, of Israel. And if you've never read the book of Zechariah, I mean, it's truly uh, an amazing book. We'll eventually get there, hopefully, in about three or five years from now. I don't know when we'll get there. But it says, I will bring the one-third through the fire. Will we find them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested? They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. And there's that whole idea that we mean it. There's an emphasis on the idea that this becomes who we are as a people. It's ingrained in us, if you will. Going back to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40, we pick up where we left off. It says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. This is what refining does. This is what discipline does. It brings us back to that place where there's those things in my life that I need to get out of the dross and the junk and all the, you know, waste and rot in my life that is sin. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not hardened. And by the way, for 70 years, they're going to be in a foreign land without a temple. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered us or yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an off-scoring and refuse in the, or refuse in the middle of uh, the peoples. By the way, the, this off-scoring or this refuse, refuse literally means waste or, you know, dung. The, the off-scoring is the same thing as this term for anything that comes off as, as something that's not part of the original material. It's the stuff that's not needed, the stuff that you would burn or throw away. This is what Jeremiah is describing is happening to the peoples. By the way, what's the very first thing they're going to want to do when they return to the promised land 70 years later? They're going to want to worship God. They're going to want to build a temple. They're going to want to worship the one who brings them back safely. Verse 46, all our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us. Desolation and destruction. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Again, the perfect definition for a lamentation. Who, who is Jeremiah crying for? God has his target right there in the loins of Jeremiah. And who is he praying for, lamenting for? Israel. His people. His neighbors. He could be complaining about them all the time, but instead he's crying for them. Just like uh, Jesus did in the New Testament, verse 49. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head and I said... I am cut off. 
What is that like? To feel all alone? What is that like to feel like no one in the entire world literally supports me? And this is the beauty of verse 55. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. I don't know where you're at right now, whether you've hit rock bottom or close to hitting rock bottom. But can you pray this prayer? Can you look at this verse, these verses here? And see that God too does this for you. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sign, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. Wow. And the saddest book in the Bible is there's still hope. Oh, Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. Oh, Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Judge my case. You have seen all your vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, oh, Lord, their schemes against me. The lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song and that poetic rhythm of the book of lamentations describing something that literally rips your soul from your very chest what is that like twice he says this phrase all their schemes are against me the emphasis of those two verses, verse 60 and 61. By the way, it's literally coming to this culmination of the last three verses here. It's what's called an imprecatory uh, prayer or, or a psalm. I had the privilege of talking not only, I loved talking to Andrew and I loved talking to Greg after the service last week. And, and Greg asked, should we still pray imprecatory prayers. Should we, should we still pray these prayers of, of asking God to bring vengeance against our enemies? David does it 25 times in the Psalms. There, there's 25 Psalms that are God being asked by one of the psalmists to take vengeance upon their enemies. Psalms like 5 and 7, 69, 109. All these Psalms where they're saying, Lord, Repay them for their sins. They deserve it. Is it okay to pray those prayers even today? Or like what Andrew brought up to me, and, and this is amazing. I always love when you guys, you know, actually do your homework and, you know, study ahead or, or make sure that what I'm saying is correct, you know. All, all these things that we look at in the scriptures. And, and by the way, I don't know everything. Thank God, you know. Uh, but I, I am challenged by you guys that uh, make sure that what I'm saying is correct. It's so important. But, but the understanding as we walk through these amazing verses is, are you actually looking at the word of God? Or do you just take what I say for face value? Or Pastor Mike or someone else that teaches in the church? Or, or maybe a podcast or whatever it is you know <clears throat> if it's on a religious network it may not be true did you know that surprise surprise where do we get all of our truth from you guys know that last three verses say this repair them O lord according to the work of their hands Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. In your anger pursue and destroy them. By the way, he's not talking about Babylon. Who is he talking about? The people of Israel. That's who he's talking about. Those people that he woke up to every single day for over 23 years and had to prophesy to. Tell the truth to. Tell them to repent of their sins. <clears throat> I 
In the very last phrase of that chapter, chapter 3, from under the heavens of the earth. Wow, how vast is that? How vast is that? Where, Where the Lord would seek his vengeance out upon the people of Israel. Those that are under all the heavens of the Lord. Do you guys know what an imprecatory prayer is? I mean, it's one of those words that we never uh, read unless you go to seminary or something like that or read a you know commentary or something. It's literally a request for divine vindication. It's an expression of a longing for God's righteousness and the success of his kingdom and his truth here on the earth now. Where, where I, I cry out to God that he would have his will done. And in an amazing way, God always confounds us when he answers these type of prayers. He does it in amazing ways. Have you ever prayed for someone that was your enemy because the Bible told you to? You guys know that, right? The Bible tells you to pray for your enemies, right? And God somehow answers in a miraculous way and makes them your best friend or something like that. Or brings them in your life more than what they were before. Why does God do that? Why does God answer our prayers like that? Or or maybe you, I don't know, the person that prayed for you. I don't know how you were, you know, 10 years ago or what you looked like or how you acted. I have no clue. I know some of you guys, and thank God that he answers prayer perfectly, even imprecatory prayers. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, it says this, this, by the way, is an imprecatory prayer, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all man. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. By the way, all means all. It doesn't mean just part. It means all. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Whose wrath? For it is written... Answering that question, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our imprecatory prayers, prayers for asking God to bring about his perfect vengeance here on this world, now today, still valid. Yes, they are. You know why? Because God's going to bring about the perfect situation in a person's life where they are at their lowest, literally hitting rock bottom. And all they have to do is look to the person that gave them hope. You. The person that's praying for them. The, the, The person that's in their life speaking truth of God. Or as it says here in verse 20, I love this. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Good. You see, the purpose of the imprecatory prayer is to cause the person in offense to come to a realization that they are in need of God. That they would experience his vengeance here in this world temporarily, rather for eternity forever and ever. By the way, is it a mercy for God to bring vengeance here in this world now rather than forever? Oh, yes, it is. Where, where we understand the consequences of our sin here in this world as we maybe, you know, the, for the first time realize, oh, I need to repent of my sins. Because the consequences here in this world are minuscule compared to eternity. Where I have to be in hell forever and ever because of my sins. We, we don't always look at, you know, salvation in that light. But it's 100% true. 
where the problems that we face in this world now are nothing compared to separation from God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And this brings us to chapter 4, and I love this because it fits in perfectly with the previous section. And Jeremiah, I mean, he's, he's framing this out in terms of what is happening. What is it like to have refined gold or refined silver? It's luster, it's beauty, it's value, it, it's, you know, something that you desire, right? But what has happened to the gold? Chapter 4, verse 1 describes it. What has happened to the gold of Israel? What has happened to the people of Israel? The value of the people of Israel that once were the treasure of God. What has happened to them? They've lost their luster. Why? Because they have impurities. What does it say there? How the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. You remember what happened in the end of Jeremiah where, where literally those bronze, huge, massive pillars and, and the bronze laver or the bronze sea that was outside of the temple, all the precious you know, utensils that were made out of pure gold that were used in the celebration or the service of, of God in the, um, the altar and the sacrificial system, how they'd all been taken to Babylon. These were the valuable objects that were used in the worship of God. And what has happened to them? They've been taken to a foreign uh, country and used in their parties. We'll see that when we get to, to Daniel. But also the people as well. What has happened to the people? Where literally they have become dingy and soiled and impure. Where, where they look tarnished. They, they, they look, you know, where their luster has gone away. There's still gold, by the way. They're still valuable. They're just no longer refined. They're still gold. But it has lost its luster. Or, or as it says in verse 2, the precious sons of Zion. Every single one of these, by the way, has double you know, meaning here. Not only comparing it to the temple, but also to the people as well. The, the people are the valuable part of Israel. But, but the comparison here is to the temple itself. Yes, the temple was torn down and, and destroyed, but it's going to be rebuilt. The, the people too, the value of them, now not just as gold, but now as precious jewels as well. Valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as, and picture that, clay pots. The work of the hands of the potter. What value is a clay pot? It's not as valuable. You can just take, uh, you know, water and mud and make it a clay pot, right? It's something that doesn't have the value of precious jewels. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young. But the daughters of my people is cruel like ostriches. In the wilderness, I don't know the, the full understanding of this, but what does an ostrich do? It, it you know, sits on the eggs, but once the, the chicks, you know, and they, they pop out of the eggs or hatch out of the eggs, you know, and, and they literally from day one, what can they do? They run around, right? They have to fin for themselves. They have to get their own food, right? Where at least a jackal offers its own, you know, uh, milk to its babies, its young. I'm sure there's a lot more details in there that I don't know about. Or as it says in verse 4, and this is where it really um, mirrors what we talked about last week at the end of chapter 2. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Why? Because there's none left to give. 
those who ate delicacies or desolate in the streets, those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. Wow. What a statement is that? We read about also in the book of Jeremiah where the comparison was there too uh, of Israel and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Where, where literally Israel out Sodom and Gomorrah. What a statement is that? What did God do, by the way, to Sodom and Gomorrah? You guys all know, rain, fire, and brimstone upon them. <clears throat> Which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. This is the culture of Israel in verse 7. We see even the Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in the appearance. You see, if you remember what a Nazarite was, it was a person who uh, would allow their hair to grow. Sometimes it was lifelong, as in the case of, of Samson or John the Baptist or Samuel. But for the most part, it was temporary. You know, you see that where uh, Paul literally cuts the hair off of Timothy there in the New Testament. Uh, but, but the understanding is, what are these Nazarites supposed to look like? They're not supposed to have anything that comes from the grapevine. They can't have grapes. They can't have raisins. They can't have wine. They, they're not allowed to cut their hair. They're not allowed to touch any dead body. They're supposed to be sanctified, set aside for the work of God. That's their whole purpose. What do they look like in verse 8? These jewels of the Israelite nation, what do they now have become? Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the street. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. What has become to those that have, you know, were once valuable or like jewels, like as it says here, a sapphire or a ruby? What have they become like? Dead men walking. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. It's too hard to read verse 10. What is, what is it like to live at this time? I don't want to end on this verse. The hands of the compassionate woman have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He's poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion. He's devoured its foundations. Kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. By the way, this was the, you know, the predominant, you know, um, view of Jerusalem, this once impenetrable city where David and Solomon and Hezekiah had built these amazing uh, towers that had literally ballistas and catapults on them as protection from enemies. And now what has come about of that great, that once beautiful city, Zion? What has happened? Not, not just to the city as a structure, but to the people that have dwelt within that city. That were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, by the way. What has happened to them? Why? And this is where we're going to end tonight. Because of the sins of her prophets. And the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. Wow. Where, where, did, where did judgment fall upon? Where, where did 
sin not only initiate from, but where judgment fell upon. It was those that were supposed to be the closest to God. They were supposed to bring the light to the nation as a whole. What was the job of a prophet? To speak the truth, just as it is today. Yes, they, they foretold the future, but that was a very small part of their ministry. Most of the time it was to foretell the truth of God. It was to show the people of Israel that there was a right way to act. And that if you didn't act that way, you had to repent of your sins. And instead, what were they doing? Showing the people of Israel how to outsin Sodom. Or even the priests. What were the priests supposed to do? They were supposed to teach the truth. They were supposed to live the truth. They, they had, you know, the ephod and all the uh, um, attire of a priest that in every single way, every single part of that attire were supposed to point people to the Messiah. When, when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of Yom Kippur and not only pray for his own sins, but for the sins of the people, it was to show what the Messiah would do. Provide a way before for us to uh, God, and and you guys know what happened on you know when when uh, Jesus Christ was crucified there on the cross. What what happened to the veil? By the way, the place where uh, the high priest was only allowed to enter once a year, from top to bottom. By the way. And now, of course, we have access. And by the way, you can read Hebrews chapter 4 too. It's amazing. <clears throat> but, but who were the ones that were leading the people into sin? It was the spiritual leadership. It was those that had the title of prophet and priest. The ones that were supposed to be the examples, by the way. Out sinning even Sodom itself. We'll pick up the rest of this next week. By the way, read, read the you know, rest of chapter 4 and, and chapter 5 as well. I mean, it's, it's really hard, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, understanding what, what does this all bring about in our own lives? You know, how do we apply this? Just like Jeremiah, he has to remind himself every single day. And just like us, we have to remind ourselves every single day. Do people disappoint us? How often do they disappoint us? Every single day. How often do I disappoint people? Again, the answer is exactly the same. Every single day. None of us are perfect. But is God refining us? Is he disciplining us? Is he making us look more and more like Jesus? And this is where the hope comes in. This is what we have to recall to our mind. Every single day when that sun rises, do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's going to be a new mercy, new grace for that day? How do I know that? Because we serve a faithful God. We serve a God who will always be for faithful. Even more faithful than the sun, by the way. That we have the privilege of knowing that we serve a God who brings us new and interesting and amazing mercies and graces and compassions every single day. So I hope for you, when you go through problems in this life, that you would remind yourself. That, that you would come to the realization, maybe even for the first time, and, and, and if any of you, you know, want to talk at the end, I'm always up here to talk. But even for the first time to realize that God is still on the throne. Even in the midst of our worst times. And so, Lord, I, I thank you that you are. That we have the privilege of knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that you are still there for us. That you're still sovereign. That you still bring about uh, your will perfectly every single day. And Lord, remind us, remind us, remind us, because we are so 
easily swayed by our circumstances. We are so easily swayed by our own problems. We are so selfish in who we are and, and who we look at. Always internalizing our own problems rather than uh, lamenting or uh, weeping for the world. Lord, thank you that you provide a way of hope every single day. That you always provide a way of hope every single instance of problems in our own lives. Where when it looks like everything is bleak, when everything is going against us, that you will provide hope in our lives. Maybe not the same way that we would plan it, but in your perfect timing and ability, Lord. And Lord, when those people that come into our lives that cause us problems, Lord, help us to pray for them. That not only would you bring about a, a situation in their life where, where they would have to come to that knowledge of you. Where the, they would have to come to the realization that you also are in control. But maybe even to give us a chance to um, uh, be an important part of their lives too. Where they would see someone who... Uh, is being refined as well, that's being disciplined as well, that's looking like you every single day, that's reflecting your glory, and that we could bring them also into saving knowledge of you as well. And so Lord, I ask a, a blessing upon these, uh, my friends and my families tonight, that you would just bless them immensely, Lord that you would help us to realize that you have chosen us to be your perfect people, that you see us as gold, valuable, jewels, and that you want us to show that to the world where we would sparkle and shine and reflect your glory. And the process of doing that brings about a, a removal of the sin and iniquity and trespasses, all the the junk of our lives, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for reminding us of that tonight as we, we go through this amazing book of Lamentations. And Lord, help us not to neglect those spiritual gifts that you've given to us, that we would share those and edify the church, that we'd be used for your uh, glory despite the lack of applause or, or the lack of anything that, of recognition uh, by others, but that we would just be used by you. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight. Thank you so much for being here. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.